0: Look over there. That's Earth, the cloudy planet we're living on right now. There it is, spinning in the vastness of space. And many, many miles away from the Earth is another planet. Ah, that's the one with the rocky surface. Very different from our own, isn't it? Here's an inhabitant of that planet. That's Tiny Clanger. He seems to be looking at something in the sky. I wonder what he can see. Look, it's some kind of space capsule. It's coming terribly fast. Watch out, Tiny Clanger, or it'll hit you. That was a close thing, Tiny Clanger. It was lucky that copper tree broke its fall, wasn't it? Now, what's in the capsule? Oh, Tiny Clanger's dancing with excitement. That's it, Tiny Clanger. Call all your family and friends. Everyone's here to open the capsule. Marvellous. Major Clanger thought to bring a tool to hit it with. I'm not sure if that will work, Major Clanger. You don't want to break it. Uh, What's inside it? A recording from the other side of space? They're all getting ready to listen.
1: White and Blue. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast. July 2010 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. And in true Jodcast um, field style, no, we're not. And on the side of a road in Milan, we are actually in Reston, Virginia, in the United States. Yay! Hello, Jen.
2: Hello, Dave. Hello, everybody.
1: Hello. And we've been having a great time these last few days over here in the States. Yes, we have. It has been fantastic. And uh, we've been to see loads of various different things.
2: We got to see a space shuttle.
1: And we've got to... We we went to Rock Creek Park and did some stargazing. Yes. And we've even looked through some telescopes at an observatory in Maryland. That was exciting. That was very good fun indeed. Yes,
2: and if you're wondering about the witty comment...
1: Yes, the bed white and blue comment.
2: We are on a bed because it's (laughs) the best place for the acoustics in this room. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the reason why we're in the States... Well, I'm over here because I'm currently going around North America, looking at all of the different science centres and planetaria that I can get my hands on. Because I love science centres and I love planetaria, and I wanted to see how um, the Americans and the Canadians did their science communications so that I could uh, take back the best examples back to the UK and hopefully uh, bring about some change over there.
2: But you really just wanted an extended holiday.
1: But I really just wanted an extended four-month holiday in the in North America. I'm so jealous. I know. <laughs> That's what happens when you don't work. <laughs>
2: And in contrast, I'm in the States, well, I was originally in the States, to do some work. I was in Socorro in New Mexico at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory for their synthesis imaging workshop, which was very exciting. I got to go to the VLA go up in a dish, which was probably the highlight. Mm-hmm. I got to meet lots of people from around the world who do a similar thing to what I do with radio telescopes, and it was lots of fun. And now I'm here with Dave. Yay! Yay!
1: It's really good to see you, Jen. Oh. And I am actually doing some work as well because all of the science centres and planetary I go around I've been reviewing and uh, this has been advertised on Big Chat and SciComm and places like this so I, I am actually doing some work. It's not just an extended holiday.
2: <laughs> and can people find out where you're going to be? Are you blogging about this?
1: I'm blogging about uh, what I do and where I go As um, as far as I, as far as it goes from here. I'll be heading from D.C. up to New England, down to New York, across to Chicago, down to Texas and finishing up in California with maybe a little trip over to Hawaii. Because I have a friend that, yes, that works at the planetarium over in Hawaii and uh, they he, he even works at Manakea.
2: <gasps> that I'm so jealous. Uh-huh. So if any Jogcast listeners in the United States fancy stalking, Dave? Yep. Get in touch, and we'll tell you where he is.
1: Absolutely, and I have to uh, say that uh, on the forum, I have been asked whether I can make my way down to North Carolina. Unfortunately, it's a bit too far at the moment, so sorry, Rapid Eye, I'm not going to be able to make it, but thank you very much for getting in touch.
2: And before we continue with the show, I have to make a correction. Now, the last show, as most of you know, was Stuart's last show.
1: Boo. It's not good.
2: And at the end, I surprised him with a little pop quiz.
1: Ah. And this was very disorganised
2: Because (laughs) Mark Perver, the wonderful Mark Perver Who helps out with the Jogcast as much as he can Was actually going through the website Going through the show notes And finding out the answers as we were recording And he came in halfway through With some, some random facts about Stuart And I misinterpreted one So I said, I asked Stuart how many shows he hasn't been heard on And I thought the answer was Twenty-three, but that's in fact including the video episodes. So there's only 13 audio episodes that Stuart wow. hasn't been heard on.
1: Mm-hmm. There's the true Jodfather.
2: Oh, I dear. What? I, I think
1: it's a really good name for it him. It is a good name. Maybe yeah. we'll make
2: him a T-shirt. Oh, okay.
1: So in the show this time, we'll be getting the first bunch of interviews that I recorded on uh, my travels around Canada. Uh, I visited the University of Western Ontario and spoke to some of their um, grad students and the staff. And we'll hear what you can see in the night sky in July from Ian Morrison and the Carter Observatory. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
3: In the news this month, a drop in Itacarina's stellar wind, pulsar irregularities, and evidence of a wetter past on Mars. Supernovae are the violent explosions of massive stars, so bright that the events can be seen in distant galaxies, but not all apparent explosions are genuine supernovae. Some fall into the category of supernova impostors, the sudden increase in brightness of a star without the terminal explosion. One such impostor event was the Great Eruption of Ita Carina, a star which is amongst the most massive known in the Milky Way. Located 7,500 light-years away in the constellation of Carina, the star is 5 million times more luminous than the Sun, and an estimated 100 times as massive. Ita Carina underwent a massive but non-terminal explosion 150 years ago, allowing the close-up study of a supernova imposter. During the eruption, the star lost about 10% of its mass, throwing off the outer into the surrounding nebula. Since then, the star has been enshrouded in a thick cloud of dusty debris and has been losing material at the rate of one Jupiter mass per year in a strong stellar wind. Now, a team of researchers, led by Andrea Menna at the University of Minnesota, have observed dramatic changes in the star's spectrum. Observations over the last decade have shown an increase in the star's magnitude, but with no major long-term changes in its spectrum, something that might be expected following an event causing a major change in brightness. New observations carried out with the Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph on the Hubble Space Telescope by MENA's team show a substantial change in the emission lines caused by specific elements in the star's atmosphere. According to the team, the sudden rapid decrease in the brightness of the emission lines, dropping to a third of their original strength in just ten years, suggests a decrease in the strength of the stellar wind, possibly signifying a much more rapid return to the pre-explosion state than was previously anticipated. With the wind density decreasing, the nebula should begin to thin, and the star itself may become visible to modern telescopes for the first time, possibly within the next decade. There are other explanations which may account for the unusual spectroscopic developments, including a change in the latitude dependence of the wind, But the complicated nature of the surrounding nebula, and the difficulties in constructing accurate models, make an accurate assessment problematic. After massive stars like Eta explode, the object left behind is thought to be either a neutron star or a black hole, depending on the final mass of the progenitor star. Also known as pulsars, neutron stars have strong magnetic fields, and behave somewhat like cosmic lighthouses, projecting beams of radio emission into space as they spin. Studying the pulses of radiation as the beams sweep past the Earth can provide valuable information on the physics of these extreme objects, allowing astronomers to probe physics under conditions which are not possible to create in a terrestrial laboratory. While pulsars are known to be extremely accurate natural clocks, their pulse rates are very stable over time, there are, however, unexplained deviations from the expected spin rate, a phenomenon known as timing noise. Now, a team led by Andrew Lyne at the University of Manchester have uncovered a mechanism which could explain this noise. Over long timescales, the rate at which a pulsar spins, known as the spin-down rate, decreases slowly in a predictable way due to the conversion of rotational energy into photons. By studying a large number of pulsars repeatedly over 40 years, the team found that the deviations from the expected spin-down rate were actually quasi-periodic on timescales between 1 and 10 years, and that several other pulsar characteristics may be linked to the same phenomenon. One particular pulsar, known as B1931 plus 24, only displays radio pulses intermittently, and long-term studies show that it had two different spin-down rates. Its spin rate decreased faster when the radio signal was detectable. The team analysed the data on a large sample of pulsars, and found a further 17 which show evidence of quadri-periodic spin-down rates, many of which also show variations in the shape of the pulse profile. The author suggests that the likely explanation is that the pulsar's magnetosphere is switching between two distinct states. Exactly what causes the pulsar to switch between states is not yet known, but if the changes can be accurately modelled, then the timing noise can be reduced, and astronomers will find it easier to compensate for errors in pulsar clocks in highly sensitive experiments designed to detect gravitational waves. The southern highlands of Mars are thought to be ancient, largely unaltered material from an earlier epoch in the planet's history. Evidence from mineral deposits in the form of hydrated silicates points to a time when the conditions on the surface allowed water to exist as a liquid. Unlike the southern highlands, however, the younger northern lowlands are covered by thick lava flows and sediments from past episodes of geological activity thought to cover older surfaces similar to the much older southern highlands. Now, a team led by John Carter of the University of Paris have found hydrated clay minerals in the northern lowlands that match those in the highland areas of the south. The team used data from instruments on both the European Space Agency's Mars Express and NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to examine impact craters where asteroids have exposed underlying ancient material up to several kilometres deep. Their results, published in the journal Science, show evidence of hydrated minerals similar to those found in the Southern Highlands in nine of the 91 craters they examined, and the authors suggest that this is evidence that the planet had the right conditions for liquid water to exist on a global scale more than 4 billion years ago. And finally, the first global map of gravitational anomalies from the European Space Agency's GOKI satellite has been released. The Gravitational Field and Steady State Ocean Current Explorer Satellite, or GOKI, was launched in March 2009 and has been accurately mapping the Earth's gravitational field for the last 12 months. Based on just two months of data, the first map shows the Earth's geoid in the highest resolution yet obtained. The geoid is essentially the shape of an imaginary ocean covering the Earth's surface affected only by the Earth's gravity, without the effects of tides or currents. The shape of the geoid will help in measuring ocean circulation and sea level changes caused by global warming, as well as in many other fields of Earth science and oceanography. The satellite is continuing to orbit at just 254.9 kilometres, the lowest sustained orbit by any Earth observation satellite, and each two-month chunk of data will improve the accuracy of the geoid model.
1: Thanks for that, Megan. Now, it was back in the middle of May when I found myself in London, Ontario, being hosted by Rob Patterson of the Kung Fu and while I was there, I went along to the University of Western Ontario, and we were able to speak to a number of the faculty members and grad students there, and here we present a selection of my interviews. I'm here at the University of Western Ontario uh, with John Landstreet, who is the Professor Emeritus. Uh, Welcome, John. Welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you. Uh, Could you start off by telling us a little bit about what you do here?
4: Yes, I'm a retired professor from the uh, Faculty of Physics and Astronomy here at the university. Um, I taught primarily uh, astronomy. In fact, we had an astronomy department for quite a number of years, which eventually merged with physics. And so at the end of my career, I taught a lot of physics. But I also have a, a large research program, which I've continued with, even though I've retired from teaching. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're interested in, I think. Absolutely. Okay, my, my work has been uh, long-term, basically, to study magnetism in stars, various kinds of stars. Uh, what, the, what it is that you see when you look at these stars that allows you to say, oh, this one has a magnetic field and this one does not, or at least if it does, it's below our detection threshold. So I, do, I have done a lot of observing over a good many years. But I also like to take the observations that uh, I and people I work with get and try and model them to try and find out more about the nature of magnetic fields in stars, uh, what kind of strength they occur with, um, what structure the fields might have, uh, possibly find clues as to how the fields evolve during a phase of stellar life, such as the main sequence, or ...even faint clues about how they might evolve from one stage to another... ...from pre-main sequence to main sequence stars to giants to white dwarfs or whatever.
1: So, uh, well, let's start with the basics then. What determines whether a star has a magnetic field or not?
4: We don't know that yet. (laughs) Uh, In in lower-mass stars, stars like the Sun... Mm -hmm. uh, ...there's apparently enough machinery in the outer part of the star... ...with deep convective motions of the gas... Uh, in a very highly electrically conducting fluid to produce a magnetic field, and and there we think we think uh, such stars have some kind of current active dynamo, and the faster they rotate, the more intense this dynamo is, and that's what's observed. So, in stars like the sun, we have a kind of generic idea of where the fields, how the fields come about, why they why they occur, uh, and the fact that the rapidly rotating low-mass stars have bigger fields than the slowly rotating ones makes this pretty plausible, although theorists have had a very difficult time trying to find any kind of detailed uh, model of these dynamos that that resembles the the, the real McCoy. Mm -hmm. In other categories of stars, we simply don't know why fields occur in some and not in others, If we look at stars that are in the early stages of their life, that is, main sequence stars like the Sun, and look up the mass sequence to stars that are two or four or nine times as massive as the uh, Sun, what we find is that some of them are quite magnetic, uh, and some of them don't seem to be magnetic at all. And the ones that are quite magnetic have magnetic fields that are not at all like the sun's magnetic field. Uh, on the sun, magnetism is a very patchy business. There are sunspots with intense fields, and there are lots of little regions of magnetism poking out in between regions that seem to be pretty free of magnetic fields. That's a very complicated kind of structure, and this is consistent with the idea that there's some kind of dynamo producing all this structure because of the if it weren't being produced nowadays, it would die away on a small scale. Uh, in, the, in the more massive stars on the main sequence, the, the fields are really intense. They're, uh, they can be as intense as the biggest ones you can readily produce in a laboratory, in an under, undergraduate laboratory experiment, um, t- tens of thousands of times as intense as the field of the Earth. Um, and these fields are really relatively simple. They basically seem to be dipolar. And some stars, maybe five or ten percent of the upper of the more massive main sequence stars, have these fields, and the other ninety or ninety-five percent don't. And and we don't know what provides the privileged position of the aristocracy.
1: (laughs) Is is this something to do maybe with uh, with planetary formation? Because obviously the Earth has a magnetic field, uh, and we have all evolved from the same stardust that the Sun has.
4: Well, honestly, we don't know much about the incidence of planets among the stars that uh, that are uh, that are the kind I'm t- that I study, which are these more massive stars that have simple, intense fields or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there. It's just observationally difficult to measure the tiny effect that people mostly use for detecting planets. In a, in a planet search for stars like the sun, what you'd watch is the is the star moving back and forth ever so slightly as in reaction to the orbital motion of the planet around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's possible in low-mass stars, because mostly they turn very slowly, and they have lots and lots of spectral lines in the visible, and so you can measure their uh, velocity towards or away from you with enormous precision, now with precisions of the order of one meter per second, or even some tens of centimeters per second. I mean, this is really getting down to uh, a kind of comfortable walk, Mm -hmm. Um, but in the stars I work on, neither of those conditions is usually fulfilled. They rotate rapidly, the spectral lines are broad, and there aren't that many of them. So it's very hard to measure, look for the presence of planets, and to my knowledge, there haven't been any detected uh, around stars like the ones I study. So uh, possibly there is some connection, but we have no real observational um, um, hints that way yet. Mm -hmm. People tend to suspect that the The fields that we see, because they seem to be rather simple and they don't seem to change from one year to another except uh, that you look at different sides as the star turns around,
5: Mm
4: -hmm. uh, people suspect that these fields are what we call fossils. That is, they're left over from some earlier stage of evolution in the star's life. From its pre-main sequence lifetime, when it may have had a pretty powerful dynamo, or may even have trapped magne- magnetic field lines from the interstellar gas from which it formed, uh, and that the, these fields are just leftovers. But why some stars should have them and others not, still a big mystery.
1: Mm-hmm. How long do, do, will these fields maybe take to to run down or, or down past the the level of? Detectability. Detectability, yes. Uh, in,
4: in fact, I've just been working on that, and, and that uh, we now have an answer ah. on
1: the main sequence
4: star, uh, and the, the answer seems to be at least a billion years or more. Okay. That is, we've looked at stars which are members of open clusters, which have the wonderful advantage that by looking at the cluster of stars to see which are the most massive ones in the group, you can estimate the age of the cluster. So we look at We look for magnetic stars in very young open clusters and very old open clusters, and we find them in both places, but the fields in the young open clusters are quite a lot stronger than in the old open cluster stars. Uh, It's still 90% no Mm -hmm. fields at all, but Mm -hmm. among the magnetic stars, it's the really young ones that have big fields, and the really old ones have substantially lower fields, but not none, just lower. Okay, well then after that, the fields, the stars have become, become giants uh, at roughly a billion years of age, or maybe less for more massive stars. And, and whatever the field was certainly gets mucked up by the deep convective motions in the outer layers of a, of a giant star. So, and, and we're just beginning to be able to detect fields in those stars to get hints as to where you know, what happens next.
1: Professor John Landstreet, thank you very much for talking to us.
4: Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for asking.
1: Okay, I'm here with uh, Melissa Battler, who is doing her PhD in planetary science and is a member of the CPSX. Could you just tell us a little bit more about what that actually is?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So CPSX is the Centre for Planetary Science and Exploration. It's a relatively new centre here at the University of Western Ontario. It came into existence just over a year ago. uh, And it's made up of about 50 faculty members in research areas within all the various faculties on campus, so engineering, science, medicine, uh, social sciences, arts, and is expanding. Uh, like I said, it's new, so we're growing. There are currently about 25 graduate students as part of the program, and the program is actually offered through the departments of Earth Sciences and Physics and Astronomy within the science faculty. So. Those different students and professors do all kinds of research in about 10 different areas of planetary science and exploration. Uh, like I said, mostly in physics and astronomy and earth sciences, but also biology, chemistry. It's a large engineering and space design component, so there's a lot going on.
1: Okay, and um, what is your particular research interest?
6: Well, I'm in the geology side of the program, so my particular area of interest is the bridge between geology and biology. So often referred to as astrobiology, it's the study of life in the universe. But I am a trained Earth scientist, so I come at it from the geology side of things. I'm looking at minerals and trying to figure out what they might tell us about potential life or past life in different environments.
1: So well, you know, past life may be on, on the Earth, but how is this helping us study other planets?
6: Right, so my, my research right now does focus on the Earth, but what I do is I study environments on the Earth that are similar to Mars for one or more reasons. There are plenty of environments on the Earth that are actually similar to Mars. Uh, in fact, there are. we've received images back from Mars, uh, and we've seen areas that look very similar to different landforms on the Earth. So there are glacial landforms and fluvial landforms where water has flowed in the past. One area of interest is springs. It appears that there might be evidence of springs. So think sort of like Yellowstone Park, maybe, that kind of hot spring, but probably not, not so hot. Uh, But yeah, there are all kinds of different environments like that, that we can go to study on the Earth, and maybe we don't fully understand them on the Earth yet. So it makes a lot of sense to learn as much as we can about them here on the Earth before we attempt to learn more about them on Mars. So that's sort of what I'm doing, and I am focusing on the spring environment, uh, particularly springs in the Canadian high Arctic, because we have very cold temperatures there. The water is relatively cold as far as springs go, and it flows year round despite the fact that temperatures drop to below minus 50 degrees Celsius. So temperatures can actually be kind of comparable to Mars, which is uh, fairly rare on the Earth. So it's an exciting environment, very relevant analog site to study.
1: And what do we know about these uh, these places and on the Earth? Is there, yes, the water flows, but yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is there in particular else?
6: Right. So the springs that I'm studying, I'm studying a couple of different sets. One in particular is unique on the Earth. We don't know of anywhere else like it. The waters flow up through uh, salt domes, so diapirs. these areas of salt uh, that have accumulated under the surface of the Earth. We don't know the exact nature of how the water is flowing up through them, but we do know that the water flows through about 400 to 600 meters of permafrost. So, yikes, cold. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How is it flowing to the surface? But, of course, it's picking up all the salt from the salt domes. Mm -hmm. So just the same way that we salt our roads in the winter to, you know, keep the ice from forming. Mm -hmm. Same idea with the springs. So the springs pick up so much salt. In fact, the salinity is about, uh, there's about four times as much salt in some of these springs as there is in the ocean, Even more than that in some of them, a bit less than that in others. But, yeah, really, really, really salty water. So it's staying liquid. Mm. And (coughs) that's interesting, first of all, because there is evidence of potential uh, salt deposits on Mars. So the same thing could have happened there. And we know there's evidence of water having flowed on Mars. Mm. So we have water, salt, okay, so far, so good, similar. Permafrost as well. We do have permafrost all over the surface of Mars. Permafrost being defined as ground that stays permanently frozen for two years or more. Um, and maybe some amount of ground at the very top meter or two can thaw. That's that's okay. It's still permafrost if only that top couple of meters thaws during the summer season. But it doesn't. The definition of permafrost doesn't require that there be water there. So uh, when I say permafrost, we mm-hmm. often think of soil that has water frozen in it. That may or may not be true on Mars. Mm-hmm. But in any case, permafrost, water, salt. So why is that all? In- it's it's interesting. But why do I really care? I mentioned biology, <laughs> so. There are things living in these springs year-round. That's really interesting. So it's this extreme environment on the Earth. We see, we can visually see evidence of these little um, microbial communities forming in these springs. They sort of latch on to different mineral deposits. So again, if you think of something like Yellowstone Park, picture that in your head. You know, those beautiful colors of mineral deposits that you see on the surface. We see a lot of those on... Uh, at the spring site. It's on axel Heiberg Island, like I said, in the Canadian High Arctic. So it looks similar. The mineralogy, um, meaning the chemistry of the rocks there, it's not exactly the same, but it's quite similar. But we see microbes associated somehow with these minerals. We don't really understand the relationship. Is it a coincidence or are they feeding off of each other somehow? We don't really know that yet. So that's where my research comes in. So this this is all interesting because we have seen evidence of, uh, even more interesting, because we've seen evidence of similar possible types of mineral deposits on Mars. So if they were put in place by these springs through uh, groundwater flowing up through salt and the permafrost, maybe there's some relation to life in those springs as well. So need to understand them better on the Earth before we can make conclusions about Mars.
1: So what maybe you're trying to do is is identify those places on Mars mm-hmm. where we have a good chance of finding evidence of life.
6: Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So, another way to think about it is, um, we're planning some more missions to Mars, some robotic missions in the like within the next decade, and some sample return missions as well. And the focus of many, most of these missions, if not all, is to look for evidence of life on Mars. People are very interested in that very, very fascinating philosophical idea of life elsewhere in the universe. That's what drives me. That's that's why I'm here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ultimately, that's why I got into science, was I wondered, you know, are, are we alone, right? Like many people do. So this is one way to hopefully get at that question. Maybe some of my results will direct uh, landing sites for future missions. Maybe we can go to some of these potential spring sites on Mars if they do prove to be as interesting as I think they might be. And yeah, maybe it'll lead to evidence of, the first evidence of potential past, or who knows, maybe even present life on Mars.
7: Hmm.
1: And just to, to take a step back, um, something that's been uh, a slight question in my mind, where do the salt domes come from under the under the surface of the, the Earth?
6: Right. So on the surface of the Earth, um, we get salt deposits forming, even present day, where we have water evaporating. evaporating. Right. So we also sometimes call them evaporate deposits. These evaporate minerals, uh, usually from the evaporation of salty water, so like seawater right so we know we have the, the salt in the seawater there are other um, components in the seawater as well that when that water evaporates it leaves behind these minerals so over time when you have a lot of evaporation happening or evaporation ho- happening over um, a large area you get a lot of uh, salt settling on the surface it can accumulate it can become thick and even if it doesn't what happens is it becomes buried over time. So your ocean dries up. We're talking large, large periods of time, thousands, millions of years. And, yeah, eventually more sediments might come in and bury that salt. So it'll eventually be buried deep underground. And then when you have uh, tectonic activity... so movement along faults, mountain building type of activity, Mm -hmm. you can get the salt moving. The salt is very low density, so Mm -hmm. it'll flow like toothpaste underground, right? Through these layers of rock, and it flows. And on axel Heiberg, what has happened is there's been this period of mountain building activity, and the salt has kind of squished its way. You can't see, I'm totally talking with my hands right now. (laughs) But the salt has squished its way through these faults and sort of pushed itself up towards the surface of the earth. It wants to get back up again right? It's very, very light. It's much lighter than the surrounding rocks. So yeah, it accumulates in these blobs, and uh, there are lots of hills on axel Heiberg Island that just look like regular hills or mountains, but they're actually, they're made out of um, diapirs. In this case, the core of that diapir is where the salt is, and the surrounding minerals are mostly gypsum, which is a common mineral on the earth, but it's commonly, yeah, commonly found in diapirs and also formed from those same Minerals that have evaporated from uh, seawater evaporation. So that's sort of how they get there, and yeah, the water's flowing back up through them again and picking up those same minerals again, we think. Mm
1: -hmm. And so the evidence of minerals that we see on Mars, Mm -hmm. is is, is it possible that the same thing has happened before Mars became, well, as we see it, fairly dead?
6: Right, yeah, so the evidence that we think we're seeing is probably quite old. So there was a period of time on Mars very long ago when we think a lot of this water uh, was flowing, there, was probab- there could have been oceans on the surface of Mars. We're still not really sure, but that would have been a very long time ago. And it's possible, it is possible that some kind of large body of water could have evaporated and could have left behind a large-scale salt deposit in the same way. Uh, we don't see evidence of that same tectonic activity, so the mountain-building processes. We don't see evidence of that on Mars, but... In any case, like I said, the salt will sort of flow and try to come up to the surface if it's been buried. Mm. So we call that salt tectonics, actually. Salt can move without even being associated with other tectonic activity. Um, That's why it's so extremely concentrated on Axel Hyberg, it's a combination of the two. But other places on the Earth, you get salt domes forming just because the salt wants to get up. So, yep, I think it could have possibly happen on Mars. don't really have a lot of evidence to back that up, but I don't see why not.
1: That's fair enough. And if I can ask for one small uh, thing, which you won't have any evidence for (laughs) as yet, but you say you got into science because of the possibility of life elsewhere in the universe. Uh Do you think we're alone?
6: No, I don't. No, I think, oh, it's just... Such a fascinating idea to find life elsewhere. Contact was one of those movies that really inspired me when I was a lot younger, the idea of finding intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. We have absolutely no evidence of that. Who knows? I'd like to think there is. But in terms of finding microbes within our solar system on other planets that had a similar climate to Earth um, back back in their history, yeah, I think it's definitely possible that we could find life right here in our own solar system neighborhood. Well, so far, NASA's... Uh, mantra has been follow the water so that's Mm -hmm. nasa being one of the leaders in astrobiology in the world uh and the other space agencies of course it makes sense everyone agrees we're all on the same page here but we're following the water because everywhere on the earth where you find water we now know that pretty much everywhere that we've looked we found life so in the most arid deserts on the earth in the most extreme environments extreme cold in uh, antarctica People are finding these extremophiles, so these, micro- these microbes that can survive extremely harsh conditions, and sometimes there will be no evidence of life whatsoever until you get, like, that one centimeter of rainfall a year or whatever, and right after that rainfall, boom, life just appears everywhere. So wherever there's water, there's life. So on Mars, we want to look in places where there was probably water in the past, so there are certain areas on Mars that have more or less evidence than other areas. You want to find the water? And also heat helps a lot. Mm -hmm. Things grow faster when they have a bit of heat. So uh, a lot of people around here at Western and CPSX are looking at impact craters. That's another very good location to look because you have that heat source generated when you have a large impactor colliding with the surface of another planet. So you have a giant asteroid or something colliding with the surface of Mars, there's lots of melting happening, the rocks, um, yeah, they're completely melting, generating all this heat, and when they punch into the surface of Mars, if there was water underground or on the surface or whatever, um, it's getting heated it up, and yeah, it could create a potential new habitat or accelerate growth and in, well, obliterate life in some areas, <laughs> but accelerate growth and maybe proximal areas. I'm not not exactly sure. No one uh, People are studying this now, but obviously we haven't found the life on Mars yet, so we're not sure. Impact craters are a good place to look because you have the heat and the water. The springs are obviously of interest to me because you have the water, although maybe not as much heat. Um, so those are a couple of areas to look right now. There's also areas on Mars where, well, in general, on Mars, the atmospheric pressure is very low, which makes, and it's carbon dioxide, so it's toxic to us, we can't breathe on the surface of Mars but in theory uh, some type of plant that takes in carbon dioxide could survive on the surface, but the problem is the extremely low atmospheric pressure on the surface combined with radiation on the surface so uh, it's not extremely likely that we'd find life right on the surface, just anywhere on Mars especially not at high altitudes where the atmosphere is even thinner and you have even more radiation but if you go say, underground, or deep within a canyon. So Valles Marineris, if you're familiar with it, it's a very large, it's like the Grand Canyon of Mars, except for it's the size of, it's the length of North America, so it's huge, it's this gigantic canyon, and it's very deep at the bottom, so maybe the bottom of the canyon, there's also a very deep impact crater that is even deeper than Valles Marineris, where it would be a good place to look for life. Some people I've heard, maybe there's evidence of, like, that water could exist at those pressures, so... Mm -hmm. So liquid water is mm. the key for finding life. We don't find life in the ice on Earth, just in, like, water droplets within the ice. So right. so that and then, uh, yeah, potential caves or lava tubes is the other place that I'm particularly interested in. So mm. we have giant volcanoes on Mars. Olympus Mons is the largest volcano in the solar system. Huge. And so it's, it's a very tall mountain, right? So on the surface at the top, like I said, maybe not such a good place to look. But there are lava tubes associated with this volcano much like we see lava tubes around volcanoes on the Earth, like Iceland and Hawaii. So these are other places where I might want to go to do some research someday. But uh, but these lava tubes, they're underground, and there might... Uh, well, in the past, there was definitely heat associated with these environments, right? So you have your heat, you're protected from the radiation. If there was water, that could be a good place as well. So there are actually quite a few places on Mars that I would really like to just uh, send humans and <laughs> go look everywhere. We can... Uh, The rovers are great. They've returned so much good information. We've learned an awful lot about Mars, but humans are much more efficient explorers, so I would really like to see a human team get there as soon as possible, and uh, Mm. I'll volunteer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are there any active volcanoes on Mars right now? no? They're They're not
6: active that we know of, um, but there is an awful lot of methane that we know is being released, so that could be related to... A number of things there are a lot of different processes that release methane on the earth and p- possibly on mars as well some of them are associated with biology mm-hmm. so that could be interesting mm-hmm. um some of them are definitely not even on the earth um some of them are related to decay of organic matter and whatever so um but there is a lot of methane released with volcanic eruptions on the earth so mm-hmm. uh, that's i don't know i don't know if that's evidence of any kind of Current volcanic activity not likely because it's recently generated methane. But um, no, they're not they're not active right now. But mm. I, I'm not sh- I don't know an awful lot about them. I think There's a possibility maybe I'd like to think okay. <laughs> they're just dormant. But <laughs> I don't really know. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, That's
1: about that Thank you very much for coming on the Jodcast.
6: You're very welcome. It was fun.
1: Thank you. So I'm here at the University of Western Ontario with Sarah Gallagher, an assistant professor with the Physics and Astronomy Department. Sarah, tell us about what you do, please.
7: So I study supermassive black holes in the centres of distant galaxies, and uh, they're currently growing, and so we see them as what are called quasars, which are um, the brightest things in the universe. And in the centres of these distant galaxies, you have systems that can outshine the hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxies by... Factor of a thousand. And what I'm particularly interested in is the process where, as these black holes are growing and you have material that's falling into the black hole, they're also ejecting material at really, really high velocities in these, um,
0: these really the energetic
7: winds. Not jets, actually, oh, in, right, winds. Okay. in winds. In mm. winds. So, and the, the winds are different than the jets because they are um, forced out by the power of the radiation. So the radiation is actually so intense that it basically blows really powerful winds. And these can be thousands of kilometers per second. So these quasars are like um, are like the cookie monster. I don't know if you're familiar with the cookie monster yes. on Sesame Street. But, you know, he really, really likes cookies. And mm-hmm. so a lot of stuff goes in, but a lot of stuff goes out as well. And so um, they're sort of, you know, quasars are kind of messy eaters. And these winds are particularly interesting because they have the power, actually, we think, that there's enough energy in these winds to actually completely shut down star formation in their host galaxies. So that once you're able to turn on a quasar, that might be the end of the line for star formation in these galaxies.
1: In in an entire galaxy.
7: In an entire galaxy. And so it's pretty remarkable because the... The black hole system itself is about the size of our solar system, um, and hosts and the galaxies they live in are thousands of times larger, but mm-hmm. they have so they pack such a wallop um, that it's possible that that could actually happen. So I think that's something that's really interesting.
0: What kind of mechanism are we talking about?
7: <laughs> well, I mean, if you have enough material and you're throwing out at thousands of kilometers per second, I mean, mm-hmm. that's pretty fast. And so you can actually – you could um, – uh, if you're able to capture that energy, um, it can actually clear the gas out of the host galaxy, and then you're going to shut off star formation because all the gas is out. So, the actual mechanics of how that works is something that's unclear, and what I'm particularly engaged in is figuring out um, if there's enough energy. In these winds, because it's the the observations right now are a bit uncertain, and we don't really know if they've got enough power to do this, and so that's something I'm really interested in constraining. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, of course, we uh, we we live in a galaxy.
7: We do, and
1: we have a supermassive black hole at the center of ours. Yes, but it's a
7: very pathetic supermassive black hole oh. as far as supermassive black holes go. Right. Um, first of all, it's not actually that big. Mm. I mean, it's supermassive, but. Um, it's about a thousand times smaller than some of the supermassive black holes that we're talking about in these quasars. <laughs> and it's also incredibly inactive, um, actually surprisingly inactive. You would It's hard to understand. Given that there's stuff around there, there are stars that are giving off material, there's gas around that black hole that we would expect to fall into it, and it does not seem to be happening. In a in an efficient way, which is something that's fairly mysterious. But certainly, the black hole in our host, in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, is is nothing to be concerned about in terms of shutting off star formation. In the way it is now, certainly not.
1: Mm-hmm. So, if it blows away the, um, the the gas to to stop star formation, this, this is a, an ordinary quasar. If it blows, right. if it's blowing the gas away, what does it do to any stars that are currently there? Does it does it leave those
7: you would expect the stars to be um, the stars to be unaffected, prob- unless they're very, very close to the um, to the quasar. Because okay. even though we're talking about a lot of material, um, it's still relatively uh, I, the get. Ga- if you're talking about the gas, okay. Let me start over. So, if you're talking about Um, the density of material between the stars Mm -hmm. is very, very low, um, even in something like these quasars. So we're talking about the amount of stuff between us and some of these distant quasars, so that's the amount of stuff in these winds, is about the number of atoms that you have if you go through the palm of your hand. Mm -hmm. So as far as something like a star, where you have much higher densities and a lot more more material, it's not really going to matter. But what it does matter is because you have... If you have gas that's accelerated to very high velocities, crashing into other gas clouds, mm. then you could definitely, if you can transfer that energy to these other gas clouds, you can, um, you might be able to clear it out. But mm. the densities are very, very low, so it's not going to affect something as dense as, and, um, and also relatively small as a star.
1: It's a bit like dusting around the furniture then.
7: <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> okay, well, Sarah Gallagher, thank you very much for your time.
7: You're welcome.
2: Thanks for that, Dave.
1: Now, Jen, would you like to round up for us what's been going on elsewhere in the world of astronomy?
2: In the last show, we uh, told you about a Japanese mission to Venus that had just been launched. And at the time, I didn't realise that they piggybacked another mission on the back of that, which is the Icarus. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Icarus?
1: Mm, Sounds like Icarus.
2: Icarus. Mm -hmm. And this is a solar sail that they've deployed up in space. They're testing out the technology to see if it's viable for the future. So the idea for this is that particles from the sun hit the sail and the energy generated accelerates the spacecraft away. So it's a way to have a space mission without all the fuel and everything because that's what limits, quite often that's what limits these missions is how much fuel you can take. So hopefully this is going to work. I'm at the time that we record, we're recording this very early mm-hmm. in the month. It's the twenty-first of June for us. It's the summer solstice. Yay! Yay! By the time this episode comes out, I'm not sure what will happen, but we'll we'll wait and see.
1: Hmm. And uh, elsewhere, on just a few days ago for us, but uh, in the middle of last month for when this goes out, Soyuz TMA nineteen a manned space flight to the International Space Station lifted off. Now, even though this is the 106th manned flight of a Soyuz spacecraft, it is the 100th mission to be conducted for the International Space Station. Woo! So, happy anniversary, or happy 100th <laughs> flight for that.
2: <laughs> and speaking of the summer solstice, there's a really cool little video up on the Jodger Bank Facebook group at the moment. And this was taken this morning. It's a time-lapse video of the Lovell Telescope taken at dawn on the summer solstice. And I think it condenses about four and a half hours into 17 seconds. So that's really cool to have a look at. I'm not sure if you can access it if you're not on Facebook. But we'll see what we can do by the time this yeah. goes out.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The summer solstice is, of course, the day of the year which has the longest period of daylight, which here in Western Virginia, is about 14 hours, 54 minutes, I think. Whoa. But if you are in Manchester, it's about 16, uh, 17 hours, something like that. But yes, from here on in, it is uh, darker nights (laughs) uh, as the nights grow longer. And someone who will be celebrating this is Ian Morrison, who loves his dark nights, to be able to see what's up in the night sky.
5: Hello, the night sky for July 2010. Well, I suppose there's something to be said for July in that the night's are getting slightly longer. You haven't got to wait up quite so long for it to get dark. And, of course, in the north of England and Scotland, it never gets totally dark at all at the end of June around the summer solstice. But as July carries on, we'll see a bit more. If you're like me, you don't know the summer sky as well as the winter sky. And I was looking up just after sunset, quite late, in fact, last night. And uh, the first thing that you see... It's really surprisingly bright, and some of my colleagues didn't think it could be a star. They thought it might be a planet. It is, in fact, the star Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. And after sunset, that's fairly high in the south. Just to the lower left of Bootes is a rather nice little arclet of stars. It's called the Corona Borealis, the northern crown. And up to the left of that we have a constellation, Hercules. I'm going to come back to Hercules in the the highlights of the month. Below Hercules is a really rather blank area of sky called Ophiuchus. But the Milky Way goes through there, and in fact I've got another highlight later on in the Jodcast to mention. In fact, the sun goes through Ophiuchus as well. Uh, So I suppose it ought to be one of the um, houses of the ecliptic, but would you want to be known as an Ophiuchan? I suspect not. Now, if you live to the south of England, or preferably if you're listening to us from across Europe, then below Ophiuchus is this lovely region of the sky around Scorpius and Sagittarius. If I look low down in the south in midsummer and it's really clear, I can fairly often see the lovely red star Antares in Scorpius. But uh, sadly, from where I live, I don't see the teapot of Sagittarius, which is just to its left, very well. But if you do see that and you imagine it as a teapot and water coming out of the spout, have a look with binoculars or a small telescope. Follow the line of water out of the spout, or perhaps I should say tea, and you'll come to a rather lovely uh, open cluster. There's a pair of them. They're called M6 and M7 in that region. They're very nice. And again, above the top of the teapot, just above the lid, there's a lovely bright region called the Lagoon Nebula. I think it's M8, and that's a lovely thing to look forward to as well. As you move across the sky towards the southeast the bright star you'll see there is vega in lara further over and perhaps lower down early evening is the star deneb in cygnus the swan and rising at about an hour perhaps half an hour after sunset you'll find altair in aquila the eagle those three stars make up what is called the summer triangle and it's a lovely region of sky to look at uh, both with binoculars, but also there's some very interesting telescope objects there as well. And if you go to the Night Sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, just put in Night Sky to Google, and you can actually track back through the months, and there are some details about most of the major constellations, and you can find what nice objects there are to look at. So, not a bad sky, actually, to see, Okay, let's now move on to the planets. And it's actually a good month for planets, surprisingly. Uh, We can see most of them if you're prepared to get up early in the morning, see one or two. And Jupiter is one of the planets you need to get up early for. Although, as we come to the end of July, it's actually rising soon after midnight. So it depends how late you like staying up. But in fact, before dawn, it's now relatively high in the southeast And at minus 2.7 magnitudes, you can hardly miss it. Now, in fact, I want to encourage you to actually go out and have a look at it because it's lost one of its major features. The south equatorial belt, one of two dark bands that you see on either side of the equator, has gone. Quite where? We don't know. Probably will come back before too long. But at the same time, the great red spot has become more prominent, and that's partly because it sits in the same region, but it does seem to be more darkly coloured now, and it stands out a lot better than it has done for some years. So it is worth actually getting up to have a look at Jupiter, maybe something like, you know, three or four o'clock, if you happen to wake up in the night and it's clear, go out and have a look at Jupiter, it could well be worth it. Saturn, on the other hand, is now an evening object and visible just before sunset. And I'm going to come back to that in in a couple of our highlights. But it's in the southwest um, after sunset. It lies on the western side. That's the lower left side of Virgo, which, of course, is itself down to the left of constellation Leo the Lion. It's best seen at the moment about an hour after sunset, magnitude of plus 1.1, so it's fairly bright. Um, The angular size is about 17 arc seconds. That means a small telescope can see some details. The rings extend to about 38 arc seconds. In fact, the ring system is still not quite edge-on. It actually reached a minimum of 1.7 degrees to the line of sight sort of late May, early June. It's now opening out, and in fact it reaches about 3 degrees angle to the line of sight by about the middle of the month. So it is beginning to open out, but still really pretty narrow. If you've got a small telescope, you'll easily pick up Titan. If you've got a 4 or 5 inch telescope, you might see another 3, an 8 inch telescope, perhaps another one or two. So it is a lovely object to see, and you've just got a little bit of chance towards the early part and middle of this month. Mercury, that's also an evening object in mid-July. It will appear about 6 degrees above the horizon in the west-northwest about 30 minutes after sunset, in the middle of the month. Magnitude minus 0.5, so binoculars should pick it up quite easily. But you do need to have a low western horizon. As you go through July, from the middle, it dims to magnitude plus 0.1, so it's about half as bright. Its size is only about um, 5 to 7 arc seconds. It does change during the month, so you don't really see anything on the surface. Uh, On the 27th of July, it actually passes 0.3 degrees. That's pretty close south of Regulus in Leo. Again, we'll come back to some of these evening planets in a few minutes. Mars is still visible. Its magnitude is plus 1.4, gradually falling during the month. Again, it's in the southwest after sunset, between Regulus in Leo and Spica in Virgo. It's down to the lower left of a star called Denebola, which is the tail of Leo the Lion. Um... The angular size is now about five arc seconds, so you ain't going to see any details on the surface. But, of course, you might have access to the Hubble Space Telescope, in which case you probably could. And finally, Venus. Well, that's very, very prominent in the evening sky after sunset. I mean, you just can't miss it. It's the magnitude minus 4.1. It stays at that magnitude pretty well constantly, plus or minus a little bit. And that's because as it gets nearer to us, which is what's happening now, it's coming towards the Earth, the angular size is larger, and that compensates for the fact that the area that's illuminated by the sun is now reducing. The two things cancel out, so we have an almost constant brightness. I'll come back to that again in one of the highlights. So there we have the planets. So not a bad month for planets. And we're going to have a look at some nice groupings of those amongst the highlights I'm just going to talk about. So what about the possible highlights you might see given clear night's during july well there's a nice skyscape in the early morning of july the 8th so you've got to get up before dawn i'm afraid Uh, the moon in fact is quite close to the pleiades cluster and the moon is a very thin crescent at that time so you might even see some earth shine that is the part of the moon that's not brightly illuminated you may see illuminated by reflected light from the clouds on the earth now, because the fact the moon is there, its light will basically mean you won't see, the scattered light, all of the stars in the Pleiades cluster, which is just to the left of it, just a few degrees away, but you should see, with binoculars, a fair number of the brightest ones. That could be quite nice to actually see. I'm trying to introduce a little section where the highlight's going to be illustrated by an, an image taken by schools using the 2-metre Fox telescopes, one of the two Australia or Hawaii, and this month I've chosen the globular cluster M13, which is in Hercules. The heart of Hercules has what's called the keystone, four stars, making a sort of rather open rectangle in a way, wider at the top than at the bottom, hence the name keystone. If you follow with binoculars or a telescope up the right-hand side of the keystone, you'll come to a little fuzzy ball, and that is M13. It is the brightest and the best globular cluster that we can actually see in the Northern Hemisphere. Again, if you go on the night sky site or put an astronomical A-list into Google, um, there's a list of the best objects, the 50 best objects in the night sky that I wrote about a few years ago, and it will give you a lot of details. Globular clusters are relatively small spherical concentrations of stars, perhaps a million or so in each one. They were born at the same time as our galaxy, and they lie in what's called the galactic halo, a sort of a sphere surrounding the centre of our galaxy. By measuring the distances to them and their directions, Howard Shapley was able to plot out the positions of all of these globular clusters, those he could see, and it was obvious that they did have a spherical distribution, the centre of which seemed very logically to be the centre of our galaxy, which of course we can't see in visual light so from that he was able to work out how far away the Sun is from the center of the galaxy about 27,000 light years on July the 15th after sunset there's quite a nice lineup of the planets Saturn Mars and Venus and in fact I think you'll see the moon uh, just below into the lower right so that would be quite nice to see Saturn's up to the left Mars in the middle Venus to the lower right, and if you've got a good low horizon, I think you'll see a very thin crescent moon just below Mars. That will be nice. Again, something a bit new. Um, I want to point out some things you can see on the moon, and the objects I've chosen this month, you can see with binoculars as well. Two great lunar craters, Tycho and Copernicus. Around the 20th of July... The Terminator is running quite close to both of them, meaning they're sharp very well. Tycho is towards the bottom of the Moon in a very densely created area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It's quite young, it's about 108 million years old. It's thought, in fact, to be formed by the impact of the remnants of a giant asteroid that broke up. One of them is still there, it's called Baptistina, but another one, it is thought was the cause of the Chicxulub crater 65 million years ago that may well have been linked to the demise of the dinosaurs. Anyway, Tycho's got a diameter of 85 kilometres, which is why you can see it with binoculars, nearly 5 kilometres deep. At full moon, you see some distinct rays animating from Tycho that stretch around the surface, and this is debris that was blasted out when Tycho was formed by the impact of quite a large asteroid. Now, in contrast, Copernicus is 800 million years old. It lies in the eastern part of Oceanus Procalarum, higher up, just beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. You'll see them curving around, very obviously around the 20th of July. Go out a bit into the Oceanus, and you'll see Copernicus. It's a bit bigger, 93 kilometers wide, and it's about 4 kilometers deep. It's a classic Terraced crater. If you look at photographs of it or look at it with an optical telescope, you can actually see that there aren't steep sides, they come down in a form of terraces. You can, in July, spot a dwarf planet. Ceres is the largest of the asteroids or minor planets in the asteroid belt. Because it's large enough to become spherical, it's actually now classed as a dwarf planet. It's actually in the lower part of Ophiuchus, so it's sort of in the region of the Milky Way, which would in general make it very hard to spot. But in fact, this month, it's passing in front of a dark cloud of dust and gas, which hides most of the stars that lie beyond in that direction. That's called Barnard 78. If you look below the star Theta Ophiuchi, then you've got a chance to find the 7th magnitude dwarf planet, series. Now, you need a chart for that, and I've put one on the Night Sky page you can have a look at. Finally, at the very end of the month, July the 31st, Mars and Saturn are quite close together, and they're up to the left of Venus. So you've got quite a nice little grouping. Tight grouping, Mars and Saturn. Lower down to the right, you'll see Venus. So again, with a good low horizon, Quite a nice skyscape to see. We don't often mention the outer planets, Neptune and Uranus, but Uranus, in fact, is about 5.8 magnitudes, so it's not all that faint. Theoretically, you could see it with your unaided eye under very dark skies, but with binoculars, it's not that difficult if you know where to look. And this month, it's dead easy. All you have to do is to find Jupiter. Put Jupiter towards the left of the field of view of your binoculars, And over to the right, you'll see two objects about sixth magnitude. The nearer one to Jupiter is just a star, but the right-hand one is Uranus. Now, throughout the month, the separation of Uranus and the star won't really change months because Uranus doesn't move through the heavens very quickly, but you will see Jupiter moving away towards the left. So, a nice chance to have a look at Uranus. If you've got a small telescope, you can see it's got this rather lovely turquoise little disc. Very pretty object to see. Well, good hunting. At least the nights are getting longer.
1: So that was what you could see in the Northern Hemisphere. But here is the Carter Observatory in New Zealand to tell us what you can see in the southern night sky
8: coming to you from the Carter Observatory in Wellington, Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is John Field and I will be describing some of the highlights in our southern night sky. Looking south and high up in our winter sky, we find the Southern Cross or Crux and to the left of Crux, the two pointer stars. Crux is probably the most famous of the southern constellations and is also the smallest of the 88 official constellations in the night sky. The cross consists of three bright stars and two fainter stars and was originally part of the centaur but by 400 AD these stars were no longer visible from Greece and were rediscovered and made into the shape of the cross in 1501. The southern cross is visible from the lower latitudes of the northern hemisphere. To those living in the southern hemisphere though they could still see the southern cross but they made different shapes out of these stars. To Māori and Aotearoa it is known as Tupanga, the anchor. To the Australian Aboriginals, the pointers were seen as two sulphur-crested cockatoos flying toward the Tree of life represented by the cross. The fifth star in the cross is seen as a possum hiding in the tree. The New Zealand flag has only four stars. This is because possums aren't welcome here in Aotearoa. The brightest star of the Southern Cross is a lovely double star, easily seen in a small telescope and Beta Crucius has a deep crimson carbon star nearby that makes a lovely pairing. Near to Beta Crucius is the Jewel box cluster visible as a haze to the unaided eye and first telescopically observed by John Herschel. This makes a fine sight in binoculars or a small telescope. The Southern Cross can be used to find south by projecting an imaginary line along the length of the cross and across the sky to the bright star Achenar. The halfway point along this line is close to the South Celestial Pole. The South Celestial Pole is the point around which the stars rotate in the southern hemisphere and is overhead at Earth's South Pole. Dropping this halfway point down to the horizon will you due south. About halfway from the South Celestial Pole to Achenar can be seen two hazy patches in the night sky. Known as the Magellanic Clouds, both of these objects can be seen on a moonless night with a reasonably dark sky. Also, like the Southern Cross, they can be seen from the lower latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere, but they are best seen here in the South. Cited during the 1519-1522 to 1522 circumnavigation by the Portuguese explorers, the large cloud is the closest at 160,000 light-years away and is about 14,000 light-years in length. The smaller cloud is about 200,000 light-years away, and about 7,000 light-years in length. Both of these galaxies are interacting not only with each other, but also with our Milky Way galaxy. The large cloud shows a barred structure and has a large number of star clusters and emission nebulae. The most famous nebula in the LMC is the Tarantula, which can be seen as a bright knot to one side. Through a smaller telescope, the tarantula shape can be easily recognised. The nebula has an estimated mass of 450,000 times that of our star, the Sun, and may eventually form into a globular cluster. This nebula is the most active region of star birth known in our local cluster of galaxies, and if this nebula was at the same distance as the Orion Nebula, it would cast shadows here on the Earth. At the centre of the nebula is a compact cluster of stars known as R136. This cluster has a large number of giant and supergiant stars. It was near the Tarantula in 1987 the brightest supernova since the invention of the telescope occurred. Independently discovered by astronomers in Chile and here in New Zealand by Albert Jones on the 24th of February 1987. Being in a nearby galaxy, it was possible to discover by studying previous images of the area which star went supernova. Surprisingly, the star detected was not a previous candidate for a supernova, and it appears that this star may in fact be a binary system that merged 20,000 years ago. Looking towards the northern horizon and stretching towards Zenith from east to west, we find the planets Venus, Mars, and Saturn. Venus will be close to the star Regulus on the 10th of July. Mars and Saturn move slowly close together, and Mars will move from the constellation of Leo to Virgo, and by the end of July they'll be very close together in the nighttime sky. Jupiter is best seen in the morning sky, but rises by about 10pm by the end of the month. Along our southern horizon before sunrise, we find the Milky Way stretching from east to west, with the spectacular centre of the galaxy just above our southern horizon. From the latitude of the Blue Mountains in Australia, the Milky Way forms a perfect ring around the horizon, and this spectacularly shows off the structure of our own Milky Way galaxy. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast from Wellington. We hope you have the opportunity to go and see some stars, not only in the southern hemisphere, but in the north as well.
1: So hopefully you all have clear skies to be able to go out and see the night sky in July. Thank you for that. And now we come on to the feedback section of the JODcast. Jen, what's been on the forum?
2: Well, The forum's been quite busy for the June episode. Thanks to Earth Unit, Rapid Starbug, The Brother Twenty Three, Sky Guide and Joda the Oak for their comments on the forum. Everyone's very upset that Stuart's left. But never fear, the Jodfather <laughs> will still be around. We're not letting him go that easily.
1: Oh, absolutely not.
2: I mean, as far as I know, he's still going to be very involved with at least the website side and depending on where he goes, we can still get him on the episodes in audio form. Mm-hmm. We won't let him go.
1: No, we won't. You
2: can never leave the Jodcast. No,
1: the Jodcast (laughs) leaves you.
2: (laughs) And also on the forum, um, Jr Edge is after advice about a solar telescope that he can use with his young son. So he posted a link to the Sunspotter telescope and wants to know if anyone has any experience with this or any alternatives to, to this telescope. So if you have, get in touch. And let
1: us know. Well, actually, on that on that point, we have a Sunspotter telescope at the Think Tank Planetarium in Ooh. Birmingham. And we've done quite a bit of observing with it. And it seems to work very, very well indeed.
2: Well, there you go. There we
1: go. Over on Twitter, well, um, Twitter isn't letting us search past five days ago. So we don't quite know if anyone's <laughs> given us any feedback.
2: It's the problem with only doing one show a month. We Yeah. We've really been a bit slack.
1: We have. <sighs> and And we've been on holiday and everything. No, not holiday. We've been... In other countries working.
2: I was on holiday as well, though.
1: You were on holiday as well. You were in Egypt.
2: I know, it was awesome. (sighs) (laughs)
1: Um, But yes, we'll try and keep on top of all of this in the future.
2: And over on Facebook, we discovered the other day that we have a community page.
1: Yes, for, as we have a, a, a bit on Wikipedia, Yes. we therefore have some somehow a community page.
2: So you can go and become a fan of that if you want. I think the term is liking these days. You're not yes. allowed to become a fan. No. But we still have the group which is more active because I don't know who gets to edit this community page. We don't have no, any so
1: access to it. Stick with the group. Stick with the podcast yeah. group.
2: And on, talking of the Facebook group, Congratulations to Andrew Dykes. He apparently downloaded the last 49 episodes off iTunes and listened to them in a week. Wow. Which I can't believe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's impressive.
2: Uh, Yeah, and thanks also to Andrew Oliver, who is also listening to The Backlog.
1: Yeah, wow. In an email, we have Ian Curran from Brisbane saying, Out of all the science and astronomy podcasts listed on iTunes, the Jodcast is up there with the very, very best.
2: Thank you. Thank you
1: very much. So, if you want to send us any feedback about the shows, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net.
2: On the forum, at forum.jodcast.net.
1: On YouTube, at youtube.com slash Jodcast.
2: On Facebook, at Jodcast.net slash Facebook.
1: And on Twitter, at twitter.com slash Jodcast. So, thanks go to the Carter Observatory for the Southern Sky piece, to John Landstreet, Melissa Battler, Sarah Gallagher from the University of Western Ontario, to Adam Averson for editing this show, and until next time, jot on.
3: Hi, everyone.
0: That was interesting, wasn't it? I wonder what the Clangers will do with the Jodcast message. Will they make their own recording to send back? How exciting! Well, it seems that Major Clanger has made a decision. He's raising his hammer to get some silence. And... No, uh, wait, don't do that, Major Clanger. Oh, Oh, no, not... And there we have it. Um... Two lonely little planets spinning in space. And one day, maybe one day, we will be able to understand one another, uh, a little better.